Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. Join us for a conversation with Jacob Needleman and Steve Heilig. Welcome to the New School. My name is Steve Heilig. I'm uh, associated with Commonweal and various healthcare institutions around the Bay Area here, a medical ethicist and a book critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. And our guest today is Professor Jacob Needleman, who is a professor of philosophy at San Francisco State University and really a renowned author of a dozen books with uh, broad themes that go deeply into some of the pressing issues of our day. So we're very honored to have him here. His newest book just out is called Why Can't We Be Good, published by Tartar Penguin. And one of the things that's most notable in his books to me, and I've actually reviewed a few of them for the Chronicle, is his ability to take deep ideas and make them accessible without diluting their their uh, complexity, and also his mix of his own personal experiences and and, uh, and thoughts into his books. And I'd actually like to start by asking you, Jerry, and I'm going to call him Jerry because we are actually old friends. Um, from your new book, it's obvious that you were drawn towards philosophical questions from the earliest age uh, in high school, as you write in here, and at Harvard and Yale and in, in universities in Europe. And I'm wondering if you had a particular uh, issue or a particular thought or a specialty in philosophy that you started out with before you started writing these broader books. Yes. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I don't know if there's a gene for philosophy, but if there is, I'm sure I had one, because even way when I was a little boy, I was sitting out on the stone steps looking up at the stars and asking my father about God and that sort of thing. I think a lot of young people have, have that. And um, it's hard to pinpoint the issue but that I, that concerned me, but I started studying philosophy at uh, college formally, but I had been reading it for years before that, precociously sort of, and really wanted to have some kind of response or answer to these unanswerable questions about uh, life, death, immortality, God, good and evil. And uh, I was a little disillusioned with my first philosophy classes at the university. They were all very dry and sterile and uh, analytic and scientific. And so uh, I got interested deeply in um, philosophy that had blood and juice in it. And existentialism was the one that I turned to very early on before I came to California. And uh, I wasn't very much interested in um, religion because what I saw as religion, I was became very allergic to in a way and uh, ran away from it. And only after I got to California and started teaching courses in religion, which I was obliged to do, did I really realize I had never really see, seen what the depth of meaning in religious teachings was. And then that became one of my primary interests, particularly when in California and San Francisco especially, all these new religious movements started springing up in the late 60s. And that was actually your first popular book, was The New Religions, writing about that. And you write in your new book that at one point you felt like you couldn't throw a, a brick out the window without hitting a guru. And some of them, I would add that some of them probably deserved that. But, but, but you, uh, 
then you've gone on to write books like The Way of the Physician, Lost Christianity, The Wisdom of Love, Time and the Soul, Money and the Meaning of Life. I mean, so it's money, love, time, uh, medicine, and then a book about America itself, and these, these big topics. And how do you, and your new one, which is basically about the, the age-old question of evil and nature versus nurture and many things like that, how do you decide when, a, when you're getting an idea for a book? How do, you, how do you pick these topics and how to address them as you go along? Well, I've been trying from very, almost from the very beginning to, uh, when I started studying uh, spiritual traditions in graduate school and, and in California, Buddhism and then finally Christianity and Judaism. Uh, I, and I started the very deep study of religious traditions. What, this, what are the ideas of all the great spiritual traditions of the world? And I realized there was a single unitary vision. And I, my aim in writing, as it was in my life, was to try to see if there was a bridge of, to where the ancient values and ideas about the human beings and the universe could throw light on the actual contemporary concrete problems of our culture and our personal lives. Try to see if there, if there could be a bridge between the two, a light that could be thrown on our modern contemporary issues. And so uh, that my first, my first, from the very beginning, I started writing about the problems or the situations of our culture and religion and education in medicine in 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 our relationship to money to love to relationships with others um, and uh, late uh, more recently <clears throat> the problem we all have with time how we none of us have any time anymore and then the meaning of America all these are problems of our culture and my question has been can the great spiritual traditions as I've come to understand them really throw some light on these issues. And that's very much a part of uh, your latest book, which in some way, when I when I read it, I saw it as, uh, we'll call it a summation, but I think the theme that you're addressing underlies a lot of what you've written before, addressing those other issues. And it's it, as I read it, it's basically, as I mentioned, the problem of evil has been addressed, as it's been addressed in philosophers and religions through the years, and the issue of who are we really and, and why, although so many of us know that these higher ideals and feel them innately, why, don't we, why are we not able to act on them so well? So I'm not sure if I'm stating that right, but if you would like to, would you state the new book's kind of thesis, and then we can talk about how you address it. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, you see it quite rightly, but I feel it very, very much as the, a kind of a culminating book of mine, although I do hope I have some time to write a few more, but yeah, I do think so. It's the, the question of questions, really, and, and we see it in the problem of, of the, 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 the almost the, the degradation of the, our, ethical, our ethical life in our culture and what it means to be a real, a, a real a good human being and why we can't. Although, as, as I say in the book, the problem is, although the title is maybe a little bit um, lighter than the book, why is it that although in some sense we do know what we ought to do, we do know what is good and just, how, why is it that we so often and so easily, almost all of us, betray our ideals and act in accordance 
opposition to the things we believe to be good. So it's a really the fundamental question of what, who are we and what are we meant to be and how can we go from what we are in fact to what we are in possibility and what we are meant to be and what we truly make us human. <clears throat> so that that book, this topic, is, is to my mind underlies almost everything I've written. And uh, I try to go into it from my own experience, as you say, in, in, as much as possible. And you say in in your book, you actually you quote Socrates. I would I would say if there were two kind of philosophical voices in here that uh, I know they're longtime favorites of yours, it, it, Socrates and Marcus Aurelius. And yes. you quote Socrates as saying that no man does evil intentionally. And I'm wondering if you could say something more about. You know, you, the thesis is that we know what is good and what is right, and we have an innate sense of ethics. And where do you think that comes from? Well, I know it's not popular to say this, but I think it, there's a, uh, two things. There's an inborn faculty. There's an inborn... We are not... See, the modern view of human nature, mostly, uh, in, in, in the sort of intellectual circles of our culture, is that we're sort of complex animals with a computer of some kind on the top of our neck, and um, we've, we've evolved in some blind mechanical process of, from primitive animal life to what human beings are, and all morality is, is more or less relative, or in any case socially conditioned into us, and um, I think that's a completely false picture of human nature, human life, that we're born with the capacity to feel and know what is right and what is good, and the values the values are not that relative and down at the heart of, of, all, of all our lives. And uh, they, this is what we call conscience, and it's born in us, as it were, and it's part of our nature as much as anything else is, maybe even the most essential part of human nature that we're inborn, and um, it's covered over as we grow older, and some kind of influence from society supports the development of conscience, of conscience and other kind covers it over. And uh, I think we're, by the time we get to be sort of more or less grown up, you know, the voice of conscience is pretty much covered over and only breaks through under tremendous emergencies and, and the betrayals that we, we ourselves do. And when we hear that voice of conscience, so rarely, but it's so powerful that it's unmistakable. So I think it, it, the, the vision of what a human being is is been totally perverted. And the other side of it, the other extreme, is also completely wrong, in my opinion. The kind of literal and fundamentalist view that that uh, you know we're put down on earth and is one truth, and we are, we are obliged to believe everything literally if the Bible says and things of that kind. I don't think that is any that I know what's true, and I'm going to make you believe what I believe. And I think it's much subtler, much more interesting, more complex than that. We are born with a capacity to be truly good, and we need to work in order to open ourselves back up to that feeling of that relationship to conscience. It's much more complicated than, but in any case, I think it's very, a very toxic idea for our young people and for ourselves to 
it's all socially uh, contingent. And you say, and you get some illustrations of, of uh, like you say, it breaks through in emergencies of a spiritual or other kind, but you, you talk more in the beginning of your book about how to consciously try to uncover this, uh, uh, this innate sense of good that, that then gets buried as we grow up. And well, we, uh, this how, is, do, how, does, how do people do that? Is it through study, meditation? No, no, it, it, that's right. This is, a, this is the question I'm addressing. And just to get back for a minute to Socrates, Socrates says everyone, no one does evil intentionally, but to really know what's good. People think they know what's good. That's what that means. It doesn't mean they actually know it, but for Socrates to really know means you know it in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in the tissues of your body. When you really know something, you you can act upon it. Now, the the question of this book, particularly the early part, is how do we find our own bridge between what is down deep we know is to be good and how we actually behave? And I was trying to find that bridge in my thought. Where, 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 because we could all come to a good agreement talking with each other and discussing it and thinking and writing essays. And, but when we actually go out into the street and, be, and uh, meet with difficulties or even minor irritations, suddenly we betray our values. We think we should love, etc. And I found the, the bridge actually was a great discovery for me. I found it in my classroom. I had no idea that I was in, right in front of a kind of practical step that we can all take to becoming actually the moral beings we would wish to be. And that bridge was in my classroom with the work of listening to another person. And that listening it becomes a deeply moral action. And this is something we can all practice. And I discovered that working with my students and working with them working with each other, that they, there is an actual spiritual discipline work of listening to another person, particularly when they disagree with us. And that requires that we step back from our own ego, from our own opinions, and let the other person in. Not to disagree, not to agree with him or disagree, but simply to let their thought into my own mind. And when I when I step back from myself in that way, I begin to be a much more moral person. And I, there's a relation that be establishes with another human being, which is a definite, concrete step toward really caring for another person. It doesn't last, perhaps. It, the moment we get out into the street. Maybe it's no longer there, but it's a step. And I have never seen any kind of practical steps that I could believe in. And I was astonished and, and, and really very excited to see that there is this possibility in our own human relationships as a, as a beginning step, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and you have some in the book, there are some great stories of some of the episodes in your classrooms at various levels, from teaching teenagers up to uh, graduate school. I'm wondering, and I had thought before I even got to the point, I was thinking about the infamous or famous Milgram study, yeah. and which was, uh, you know, demonstrated uh, and has been used as many times as demonstrating people's uh, ability to do harm to others uh, under, I guess, what you could call peer pressure or in an institute or in an institutionalized setting. And this was uh, done back in 1960. Was it one sixty-five? Anyway, early 60s. So would you recount some of that, the experience of showing the film made of that infamous study and how your students uh, reacted? 
suddenly that film has become, uh, that experiment has become very much in the public eye again because of the Abu Ghraib uh, situations. And, and uh, Phil Zimbardo has written a very interesting book about experiments in that line. But this was the original experiment was to put, very briefly, to put a very ordinary human being uh, in a situation where he was administering shocks ever-increasing intensity to a subject in another room uh, in the form of a test of memory, one one question after another, and um, the person in the, in the room was strapped down with electrodes, and the, the person sitting at the table was administering these shocks, and if the man in the room with the electrodes strapped to him made a wrong answer, he would be given a shock one after another as increasing intensity. And this man had presented himself as someone who had a weak heart, etc. So the ordinary guy pressing the switches was presumably shocking this poor man who started screaming, let me out, let me out, I have a bad heart, etc. And he kept looking at the experimenter to say this man is suffering. And the experimenter said, you must go on. The experimental experiment requires you must go on. And he had a white coat on, a lab coat, and all kinds of authority, and the poor fellow in the pressing the switches kept obeying the guy until the person in the, in the booth was slumping and screaming and finally silenced and maybe had a heart attack, and this guy, poor guy, and the switches kept turning the switches higher and higher and higher. It was it was shocking in two or three senses of the term, and the students and I, everyone who sees that film just can't believe it's happening, and it turns out it happened a lot to a lot of people who were given, and of course it was a setup. The guy in the booth was not really getting shocked. He was part of the, of the uh, experiment, but the man administering the shocks could not accept what he was doing. He could not see what he was doing, although he did, he did seem to, but he just obeyed the authority, even to the point where he was possibly killing another human being. And like, this this film shows, with, this experiment shows, and this film shows with incredible clarity how it's possible, how much we block off our own manifestations so we don't really see, we don't really see deeply how we betray our morality. We always justify ourselves in some way or other. And the, the, the work of trying to see ourselves betraying our morality is the principal method, principal means by which we can become truly moral. As long as we, as long as we falsely believe we're okay, more or less, we have good reasons to do this or that thing, or we don't even realize what we've done, then there's no hope we're going to just behave in this uh, immoral way. So... What that experiment shows, and I'm not sure that was the intent of the experiment, because but what I which I show to my students, and they all are gasping and shocked when they see it, is how 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 obvious it is that we cannot see how we really are. So the book begins with what I said to the student, but it, it ends toward that direction that the need to try to obey the moral law that we know is right but to suffer the fact and see consciously that we do not obey it. And that is the kind of fire that enables us to awaken to what we are meant to be. Is that clear?
clear what I said? I don't know if it's just something. No, thank you. And in fact, you mentioned Philip Zimbardo, who's a psychologist at Stanford, and his, it's fascinating, really, the, the timing of it, because his new book is called The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. And he was actually even an expert witness on the Abu Ghraib trials. And his, it's very complimentary, I'd say, to yours in a way, because Absolutely. He, his is to say that there's no bad apple but a, a bad barrel, basically. And so that you can, you know, people's innate sense can be overcome by their upbringing circumstances. And so the, back to the question of uh, beyond the, having an emergency or being taught, what can, if you have thoughts on this, uh, you address it somewhat in your book, what does an individual do in, in, uh, in isolation in themselves to cultivate or recultivate this, this sense of good again through... Well, I think it begins with finding companions who have the same question. I don't think we can do much all by ourselves, but I think there are many people out there who wish to go into this question together, and I think that is the start. When you, when you really get people together, and then they begin to work at listening to each other and, and find ideas and, and maybe books that really touch them down deep because there are books that really touch our moral sense too. Not, I'm not speaking of the Bible or anything particularly, but great books of philosophy, great novels and great art. And then find uh, men and women coming together trying to look into these questions more deeply and converse in a way that is much more open to each other. That would be the beginning and that very often will attract a help that may come from uh, people who really do understand, because there are people out there who can help us. Uh, and in fact, they're probably looking for us more than we're looking for them. So uh, that may sound mystical, but I think it, it's true. I think the first thing is to find people who you can really listen to and work with uh, on this kind of thing. And, uh, that's where I would start. Everyone, the same question was asked me with, with the book on America, by the way, and I think the two go hand in hand there. That can I say something about that? Yes, well, I'll come back to that, too. Yeah. Because it, it, the, book, the question of the book was the meaning of America, really. And I tried to discover that, I did discover, I think, that the, only, the deepest meaning of America, with all its might and power and great constitution and everything, is that it makes it possible for people to come together, to come together and work discovering their own individual conscience, their own individual moral nature. And that, to me, is just the whole reason for the founding, ultimately for the founding and creation of America. And the greatest of our founding fathers understood that, that what was needed was a safe place to search for conscience. And yes, it was an economic and, and a political issue, and, and military issues came up, but it was all there to protect the, the individual human being coming together with others to search for some contact with their higher nature, which I'm calling conscience in this book. Something of a different twist on the concept of it takes a village, really. So, of what? Of it, it takes a village to uh, to nurture the best in people in general. Right. You know. Right. Um, you in your, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's right. Complete. Okay. Uh, in in your new book, um, you you mention again that sometimes it takes very uh, unusual or extreme circumstances to remind us of of our our best 
willing, I'm wondering if you might uh, retell something of the story about your own mother falling ill and then dying here in San Francisco uh, while she was with you and how you, what you felt uh, after that. That might not be possible for me to do over the phone in, mm-hmm. in, in an interview, but I could say generally that uh, there, when that when when things like that happen, one's deepest, closest people die, or when uh, one behaves, I mean, one one then has a moment sometimes, or more than a moment, to see how one has actually behaved toward that person. If it's a mother or father or, or brother or sister or somebody close, or it can be it can be under many other conditions too, uh, or in a in war or sometimes under great stress, like or under situations which we just described with this experiment, uh, when one sees it's brought home to one that one has betrayed something of infinite value in oneself and in one's relation to the other, a kind of uh, remorse sets in. And that <clears throat> that power of remorse uh, is the transforming fire. And when one's mother dies or father dies, etc., and very often there's a deep silence, a deep sense of, uh, of a remorse, which you might call remorse of conscience. It's not the same thing as guilt. It's, it's simply a, a humble awareness that one has betrayed what is truly valuable. It is unmistakable and it's, com- un- it's totally compelling. And it's not like saying, gee, I should have been different. That's, that comes later. That's maybe sometimes guilt appears and then you have a, you flog yourself, you suffer, you, and maybe sometimes it even becomes very neurotic. And, and frightening, but this is a deep sense of your of your uh, remorse. Is a deep sense of your failure to be what you are, and that sense of remorse actually is a huge moral force. That for the least for the time that is present, it makes you into the being you wish to be. If a person has some contact with that feeling of the remorse of conscience, they cannot betray their values. It's that's just not possible. You become what you are, and that's the price we have to pay as human beings. Now, this is a this is an idea that I didn't invent, but I simply rediscovered parts of it when my mother uh, died, and other occasions of my life. And we'll find it in our own great at the heart of the great spiritual traditions we were brought up with, even though. It's been all covered over in sometimes in the churches and synagogues and the political uh, the political uh, changes that are taking place in religion that they're serving and um, the superficiality that's coming in a lot of religions. But you'll find it at the really deep spiritual mystical heart, if you like, of Christianity, Judaism, and I presume of Islam. But also in Buddhism, it's really at the heart of everything. The, the confrontation that is so deep that it silences all our conditioned reflexes, and we become what we are meant to be. And I think I don't think we can create, we can invent those situations, but we can be more sensitive to them and, and just look back in our own life to when we've experienced those things. That would be another big step toward becoming moral.
mentioned in your book as well that, in your view, a lot of the freedoms we have won in the modern era from various dogmas and freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera, have then, while they those freedoms are valuable, they leave open the question of of freedom to do what and to be who, and 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 you know it's left many people with a sense of emptiness as well. Yeah, that's it's true. It's really ironic because it's such a a great value to be free from tyrannical, oppressive governments, for example, to be free from restrictions on what we can say, and, and even some a large number of restrictions on what we can do and sexually and all other kinds of ways. But for some reason, it hasn't really made us happier, really. On the contrary, there's a kind of despair, relativism and, and subjectivism and a kind of shallow individualism, which is, is, is very toxic. And our young people grow up without any sense of thinking they have to choose between a, a kind of shallow re- relativism and a tyrannical fundamentalism, but both of which are, are two sides of one bad coin. And so the question, of, as you put it, as I tried to put it in the book, too, is uh, freedom from is very good if you know what you have freedom for. And we've la- we're pretty much lacking the freedom for part in our culture. It's, it's very. Uh, but in my opinion, the freedom f- is the freedom for is the freedom to be, become a moral person, open to the deepest spiritual teachings coming from within ourselves, from our own conscience. And uh, that here's my point. In another, put it again another way. I have the view try to argue it in this book that human being was not made for pleasure was not made to gratify the ego, was not made to make money, was not made to have babies it was made to serve something bigger than oneself we are built to serve and the only happiness we're ever going to get is when we begin to serve something that is bigger and better than just our own individual ego and that might be all kinds of good causes, or ultimately it comes to serve something higher than ourselves, from which we descended and to which we belong. Now, how we find that is going to be up to us, and if he's working with each other. But oh, I, I, my point, and I try to show it in the book, we're only really happy when we are giving, not when we are getting. We have a pleasure when we get, and it's good to get, but for what? For what? trying to say is we, we, are, we, we get, we take, and it's good only to the extent that it enables us to give. Now that may sound uh, sort of moralistic and all that, but uh, I believe it is the deepest truth about human nature. And you do in the book uh, explore the idea of what is a common thread of, of a, a code or a, uh, a moral message, which basically, and you, you, you focus at first on the Torah, but you say that many other teachings are just as valid, and it seems to come down to some variation on what's been called the golden rule, right? Yes, that's, the, that's it. And uh, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, of course, that's, a funda- that's the fundamental thread of the whole of the Hebrew tradition, which has been passed on in its way to the Christian and the Islamic tradition. It's defined the whole Western culture is it's the essence of Judaism is, is ethics, is love 
love of one's neighbor, care for one's neighbor, love of God as through caring for one's neighbor. And um, you'll find it equally in the Eastern traditions. It just needs to be translated a little. But um, I start, as you know, I start the book with this, I found, very charming little story in the Talmud, um, which comes from my own tradition, of course, about the, the great ancient a rabbi uh, who was a t- spiritual teacher, Hillel, who, um, may I tell that brief story? Sure, yes, please. This is, a, this is how the book begins with this story of the, the well, Hillel, who was a great rabbinic teacher who lived around the time just before, around the time of Jesus. A man comes, a young man comes to him and says, uh, rather defiantly, I will become a believer in Judaism if you'll tell me what the essence of the Torah is while I am standing on one foot. And uh, Hillel very quickly, simply, gently replies <clears throat> with that a one, one version of the golden rule, which is that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. And then he says to the man, now go study. And to me, that defines the whole, the whole point of uh, what we are meant to be. And it's because that golden rule has been cheapened and its expressions has been mocked and it's been looked to be impossible and it sounds unrealistic. But down deep, it's the essence of the whole moral law that the Jewish tradition has given to the world and which the rest of the world, our culture, has fundamentally been based on. So we could say a lot more about that, but that's what the, that's, in a way, this book enabled me to discover, to rediscover a lot about the, my own Jewish tradition, which I ran away from very fast when I was a young kid. Right, a common scenario, right? <laughs> I, I would like to ask you about, I know one of your favorite uh, writers uh, and teachers is Marcus Aurelius, his uh, meditations, and I think what's fascinating about him to me, I mean, on many levels, was here was, as you mentioned in your book, the most powerful man on earth at that time, the emperor, and he would sit and go deeply into philosophical questions, and he was maybe what, uh, you know, the closest thing that, to a philosopher king that's ever existed. I and the so. quote you pick from him is... is uh, he asking himself, actually, to, quote, stop letting the guiding principle within you be tugged around like a marionette by the strings of selfish impulses. And uh, it, it's just striking when I think of politics through the, the years and leaders, how few such leaders we've really had. And being a, uh, he was very much involved in warfare as a, as a you know, part of survival, really, there for his own, his own nation state. But... Uh, do you think it's possible in, the, in our current years for you know the way the system, the political system in the world is for for us to have somebody on his level in this time? Oh, I think it is. Uh, I think he, it, 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 I think we, for people, of course, it's very hard in one sense because to be a world leader uh, requires all kinds of games and all kinds of compromises and all kinds of all kinds of, uh, uh, I don't know, eth- ethical compromises, etc., too. But I think such a human being could could exist and could come into power. Um, but you must understand, yes, that Marcus was, 
there in the greatest power on earth at the moment. At that time was Rome. He was the emperor. He was sitting in his tent while there was a military campaign against the barbarians in the swamps of Eastern Europe there. And he was, he was trying to teach for, 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 for philosophy in the ancient world was not in an intellectual discipline. It was not only that. It was not an academic discipline. It was a way of living. And to call yourself a philosopher in, those, in that era was to live what you were speaking, to live a good life, a wise life, a caring and just life. And one of Marcus's disciplines, his exercises, what he, what he was practicing in this book of his called The Meditation, is really a collection of his own exercises that he was trying every day of his life. And one was uh, to try to, to not be pulled around by those puppet strings, not to simply listen to his own immediate reactions and desires and opinions, but to step back from his, his emotional reactions to everything and try to listen within to uh, the voice of what he we would call now the intelligence and the heart of the universe itself, what was called the logos, or the world, the world, the mind of the world. It was like Socrates in that respect. And he tried to listen to that mind, and he saw that he failed again and again. So the honesty of this great, powerful man and the, and the clarity of what he was trying is breathtaking. Now, I tried an exercise with my students with and this is really important to my mind. Uh, when I, we were studying Marcus Aurelius, and um, I asked them to just try to, for, next, for a day or two, to when they were annoyed with something, to step back and try to just observe themselves being annoyed, not try to become better or worse or, or change it or anything, but just to observe it. Well, to make a long story short, almost all of them forgot to do it, but the one person who really tried was a young woman who got very upset between class between the days of the classes when she went to the dry cleaner and her cleaning wasn't ready her clothing wasn't ready when it was supposed to and this this gentle little young woman got furious as most of us would with the person behind the counter but suddenly she remembered oh this is what Professor Needleman was talking about. Here I am. I'm annoyed. I am annoyed at this person. And she said, suddenly I was like two people. I was somebody who was angry, and I was also someone who was just watching very calmly, uh, watching myself. And eventually my anger became much softer, and I was able to leave with a good word to the other person. And then what she said, what she said then was the thing that stunned me. She, what she had experienced was that with her mind, she could step back from herself and just be aware of herself and just watch. And she said to me, she said to the whole class, I had no idea my mind could do that. I was stunned because this is such a fundamental property of a human being to be able to separate from one's own emotions and opinions and reactions. And I was thinking... Are we raising a culture where people do not know this capacity of the human being to separate from itself and just become free for a moment and become connected perhaps?
Well, you mentioned only really in passing in the book uh, Buddhism and teachings along those lines, but that that those parts that you're saying now and you talk about later in the book very much rang true to me uh, in those traditions of really one of the aims of meditation to be able to train your mind to to uh, step back from being tugged around uh, by the just the whirlwinds of, of your emotions and reactions. Yes, it's very much Buddhism. And uh, it, that stepping back is itself a moral force. It's not stepping back in, in order to get rid of your bad parts, and that's when it becomes sometimes in, in when, the, when the religion becomes more, too moralistic. But the actual stepping back itself is the moral force. But it's, uh, it's very much Buddhism in some, many of its forms. It's very, but I think if we really know how to look at it, it's in every great tradition. But Buddhism has been able to state it in a way that is meaningful to many people now. I want to come back to your the book previous to this one again, The American Soul. Um, it was published in, in 2001, actually. And when I spoke to you then, uh, you know, the book was, you were just finishing it when September 11th, 2001 happened. Yes. And uh, I had asked you if you had felt you had to change the book uh, related to that, the, the kind of chaotic reaction about what is America all about and the rest of the world. And you said no, basically all of the uh, the ideas you had in there, the fundamental founding principles of America still held true. So we're now, uh, you know, almost six years on, and I'm wondering if you look back at uh, what you were writing then and, and what you thought about in terms of what is the essence of, of America, uh, if you have more reflections about that. Well, <clears throat> it's still true. It's still what we still it's still we're still able to find our way to come together to to reason together to converse as free citizens. It's still possible. The space still exists. It may be getting crowded a little bit around the edges, uh, a little bit narrower around the edges with certain uh, the Patriot Act and things of that kind that people are uh, sort of finding difficult. But we're still America. We're very endangered at this point. It, um, it's, um, but it, there's a sense in which we feel, one feels that it's beginning to change. The tide is beginning to change a little bit. That we're beginning to know what we stand for. We're beginning to know that uh, we have the power to make a change in our government when we feel it's wrong. And um, we have the ability to hear and listen to each other. I think... I think it's still America, it's still possible, and as long as that that possibility remains, we can maybe we will continue to exist. But if it gets too crowded out with fear and greed, then we'll no longer be America; we'll just be the United States, and um, that'll be a powerful country which will not last too long. I would I be stretching it too much? I was struck in reading your new book and thinking back on the on the American Soul, the previous one, that. I mean, they're very. There was a a thread between them. If the American soul could be seen as one that uh, is kind of the national level of this, it's basically yes. uncovering what is good that gets buried up, and how do we hold to the the very really lofty but fundamental values that the founding fathers had? And and as you mentioned in that previous book, we've been through a couple of horrible wounds. The Civil War was one of your slavery, in, in particular and the decimation genocide of the Native Americans were uh, really basic wounds that the country has had to live with and, and 
anger and greed and, and uh, these past wounds as well. Well, we are, and uh, we're struggling with a, with a culture which, I mean, I haven't read Al Gore's new book, but the title is compelling. I, I may be misinterpreting it, but we are, we, we're a culture where the use of reason in a deep sense, a warm, a warm sense, not a cold and icy sense, where we haven't been, we're chipping away at, I think, let me put it another way, we, we um, there's a lot of toxic ideas in our society now that we are bringing into the culture, into young people's minds, and uh, I think there's too much of a reliance on television, on, on entertainment, on sound bites, on computerized living, on electronic communication, and not enough of sitting down with real flesh and blood human beings and thinking together and reasoning together and opening our hearts and minds to a question together. That's the heart of democracy. Without, and I think our young people are not being shown enough that, that what it means to just sit down and talk and reason and converse about. Because no one human being has the answer to our problems, but together the intelligence of the group can begin to appear. And the war that we're fighting, whatever it is called, is not is a war of ideas. We have to rediscover the great ideas that touched us as Americans. And that that is where the that's where it all has to begin, in my opinion. I don't think it comes with big political movements. They are necessary on one level, but ideas touch the part of a human being which loves truth and loves the good. That's what we need. That sounds maybe too unrealistic, but it's absolutely necessary. Well, when people I was need to know Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is our greatest American philosopher, maybe our greatest American writer. Uh, I was I was worried about my students because I was afraid that they would not re- respond to the the uh, beautiful but somewhat uh, old-fashioned language of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and they loved him. They loved it. They, they, and I asked them why. Of course, it had to do a lot with the way the course was taught, but they said reading Emerson gave us hope. And if the hope was not so much in the content of Emerson's philosophy, or rather, it was not so much the content of what he said, it was the part of themselves that they touched when they read and heard these ideas. And that is the, the heart, the, uh, the, the moral core of a human being can be touched by great ideas. So if we have enough people begin to connect with each other in that way, I think that could be a tremendous force for good in our country. We, we don't really think very well. I don't mean we don't think scientifically. We are very smart with engineering, with technology, with some kind of scientific things, but we don't think philosophically very well uh, in, a, in a human sense, not in an academic sense. And, but when that kind of those questions are opened up for people, they, they're, they're like hungry people, but we're yearning for, for great ideas. We're yearning for, to, to ponder these questions. People are starving for this sort of thing. Young people, too. I was just teaching, working at a high school here in the Bay Area to try to bring ethics into the curriculum more and these kids, high school kids, are just starving for great ideas. And um, so that's where 
Now, maybe I sound a little prejudiced because I'm a philosophy professor or something, but I really think this kind of thing is at the heart of what it means to be a human being and to be a moral human being, and that's what America was meant for. Could you, I just as a footnote here, or a reference, could you say what uh, essay or, or works at Emerson you were oh, most well, commonly you reading? Take a probably a dart and throw it into Emerson's in it. <laughs> but I would say, man, not a brick. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> but I would say, well, I always start with the Oversoul, which is Emerson's sort of signature essay, as they say these days, and then go, and read Self-Reliance and um, the what's called the American Scholar, which is a great essay, and the uh, Harvard Divinity School Lecture, uh, and then I would say also ex- uh, compensation, the essay called Compensation, and then the essay called Experience. Experience, and right. So I actually, you, you conclude your book, actually, and I, I really enjoyed and found, you know, heartening, as you say, some of the uh, stories you from the classroom. And at the end, you're talking to very young, to 14, 15-year-old high school 14-year-old, yeah. 14-year-old, yes. And as you mentioned it, I love the the term you used, talking to these, you saw young people only just coming into the chaos of human life in the world. And then they would ask you questions, and you had a young woman who asked you, and this is one of the themes of these these interviews in terms of ecological ideas. She just spoke up out of the blue and said, why are we destroying the earth? And and so how could you talk a little bit about how the discussion that you had then in response to that question? Well, that's, I started thinking, yes, what am I going to do with these little kids? Are they for me? They were little kids. I mean, the young some of them came up to my waist directly, and uh, uh, but they turned out to be the deep, as deep an ethical audience as I've seen. And then some, somebody called out, yes, why are we destroying the earth? And and we went into that question about uh, how people really maybe try are trying and and we have to understand that we know what we have to do we we really know that what is right here and maybe these people who are the heads of big corporations that everybody is saying are responsible, maybe they also have a part of themselves that knows what is right and knows what is good. <clears throat> and how can we understand the problem without understanding what human beings are? And not so much blaming them and thinking we would do better if I were president of Exxon, I would certainly be doing better things and I wouldn't be so greedy. We just need to understand what human beings are, that maybe they have a conscience too that has to break through. In any case, the point was not the answer, the point was the process of ethical reflection that's not not agitated, not ready to, to, to put down the person we disagree with, but the need to understand. And these kids, they are the, they are deeply interested in that sort of thing. They are ready. They're ready to think deeply from the heart. That's what touched me about it. So by the end of that class, I just felt there was so much hope in, these young, in, the, in the young people. Um, so the book ends, for me, it ends on this hopeful note that there are these young people who are, and 
inside of us who, who are hungry for great thought. I don't, I don't know if I've summarized my book very well there, but that's, that's where, where, where it ends. Well, I thought it was fascinating on, on your own personal level. I mean, you were coming back to teaching children who were the same age that you started uh, really pondering these ideas yourself. So you probably, I'm wondering if you, you, know, you see something of yourself in them. Maybe that's right. You know, I hadn't really thought of that, but yes, of course, there I was, that, that little boy in the first row just interrupting me. Why do people get, why do people get angry, he said. What a great question. It stumped me, and uh, that's what we need is to be stumped together. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned uh, the need for action as well. Um, I think the famous quote from, I think it was Edmund Burke, is that all is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. Um, well, yes, that's true. Action, but action without truth is not so much a good thing. But action with truth is completely what we need. That's absolutely what it is. So we can't forget the truth part. And the truth part isn't just what I, what I believe. It's what we understand together. And I, I, I think uh, Burke would have agreed that, that that's what it makes what it makes America something special. Is that people are free to think together. But if they come to free just to shout at each other, then it's no longer much use. I, I don't think this is a matter of we have to act, but the, between between what we know and action, there's this other intermediate step, which is to think together about who and what we are. That's being left out. Really, I really believe there's an intermediate step between um, thinking in an isolated way about what's good and bad and then acting out there in the world. Because it's, the tragic truth is that most causes start very, very nobly. And very soon they attract lots of people, and very soon it becomes factions and people don't listen to each other. People start hating each other. And they all believe we should do the right thing, but if you don't do it my way, I'm gonna kill you. Uh, and then it becomes the same old story. So the revolutions start but then they never go past the first difficulty. And that difficulty comes when people can hear each other. I mean, how many good causes have there been and how many that have come to nothing or have even made things worse? And I think there's danger for the environmental movement as well. Uh, it's become a big movement. Now, are people listening to them to each other the way they wish to be listened to by their brothers? I don't know. But you sounded like in the previous... Uh, something you said previously here was that you have some sense now of optimism about uh, more than perhaps five years ago about uh, the nation as a whole in terms of... I think so. I think so. I think we're... The, uh, the, I think I'm very, very encouraged now by things that are happening and books that are appearing. And I haven't, oh, haven't read it, but this latest book of Paul Hawkins looks very interesting about... Um, uh, what is it? What is the title of it? The great restlessness or something like that, that there really is a, a movement stirring. But will it get past the point of, if it, will people be able to, to be open to each other, open to, to, to separate, to let, to let each other in when they disagree with them 
disagree or when they seem to be not accepting what you want or your way of doing it, if that doesn't happen, if people can't state it, then that's going to take, that's where the hard work will be in the, in the revolution that's coming. But I think the revolution is ready to happen. People are ready to try to change the government in another way, to try to protect the earth. But will they be able to do it as a group or a community of love and, and care, not so much sentimental love, but to be care for each other as much as they wish us all to care for the earth? Well, thank you very much. We're really up here at the end of our time, and I've, oh, I've had a, I mean, as I think people can, can tell, any one of uh, Dr. Needleman's books that go into so many uh, deep topics that you could spend hours on any of these, and his students in his classes through the years have been very fortunate, and I feel fortunate to be able to talk to you here again today, and thank you very much for uh, spending time with us, and the new book is Why Can't We Be Good, by, uh, on, published by Tartar Penguin. So thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you, it's a real Steve. pleasure it's to a talk to you. Great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. This program was pre-recorded with a live telephone audience. If you would like to join future conversations, please email us at thenewschool at commonweal dot org. Commonweal is spelled C O M M O N W E A L. And please visit our website, where you'll find full-length recordings of all New School conversations, as well as information on upcoming events. Our website address is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Thank you for joining us.